So, Kevin, I wonder if maybe a place to start, if you could just share with us your analysis of where you think we find ourselves in terms of climate change and what's our current trajectory if we carry on as we are. In terms of the language around climate change, I get the impression that there's still uh, there's still a view that we can probably hold to avoiding dangerous climate change characterised by this this magical two degrees C rise in global mean surface temperature. Uh, this is the, this is the target that we have established um, in Copenhagen and then later in Cancun, and that most nations of the world have now signed up to that we should not exceed this two degrees C rise. Um, so I think that that language, that rhetoric, is still there. Um, but if you start with our emissions, and then more particularly, if you look at the emissions we've already put out into the atmosphere since the start of this century, and you look at what's likely to go get, get out in the next few years, then I think it paints a very different story. And I think it's hard to imagine that unless we have a radical sea change in attitude towards emissions, probably means our attitude towards energy in the short term, then we are heading towards a four to six degrees C during the century. And can we, in your opinion, say for definite that this year's extreme weather can be linked to climate change? Um, certainly not. We can. I think it's fair to say we, it is unlikely we will ever be able to robustly link any particular single event to climate change. Now, that's not to say we can't get a greater level of attribution where we can start to say the things that we are seeing are what we would expect to see. We are struggling to find any other reasons for them. And therefore, it does seem a high probability that these events are caused, if not exacerbated by, um, by the rise in, in CO2 emissions, other greenhouse gases, and hence the increase in temperature. But I think it is, it is unlikely we would ever be able to say that any single event is a climate change event. But would you say that it is much if if we had we if we were still at two hundred and eighty parts per million, it would be much less likely that we would have had a summer like this? Yes, I think it, I think that would be a fair comment that it would be much le much less likely. So the probabilities before we had this summer, the probabilities of having this summer would have been less if we had not seen significant rises in the greenhouse gases and the, um, and the community values in the atmosphere. So I think this is we are starting now to see events that is difficult to explain um, going by the normal probabilities of, of, of what we get. We get weather events. We always have had weather events. Extremes do occur. But if extremes start to occur regularly, they're no longer extremes. And what you've then seen is not a weather extreme, is you're seeing a change in the climate. But it's hard to say that any one particular one of those range of events is a climate change event and not just an, an extreme weather event. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes people talk about this idea of a new normal, you know, that we're living in a, that we've moved into a, the, the sort of the basic conditions around us have, have changed. In terms of what, what's happening in terms of the climate, would you, how would you characterize the, the new normal that we're in, given the rise we've had in emissions so far? Okay. I think it would probably be a very short normal because um, I don't, this is the normal at all. I think we'll be, well, it's, it's the normal for today. But I think the rate of increase in emissions and that there is no sign at all of that rate significantly coming down um, would suggest that we'll be reaching a new normal and then another new normal and then another, another new normal. So I am one of the people that thinks that we are likely to be seeing significant climate change impacts over the next 
uh, one, two, three uh, decades, and obviously beyond that point. Um, so at the moment, less radical change in our um, emission pathways and trajectory, and I think the normal will be changing. Okay. Um, so you'll be you you have already argued, and you'll be arguing in Bristol in November that uh, responding adequately to climate change and economic growth are no longer compatible. Could you flesh that that case out a little bit for us? Yes, certainly. Um, now I'm going to talk this talk specifically about the Annex One, the wealthy parts of the world, the OECD countries broadly. Um, so the countries that are, that are fairly well industrialized. In those parts of the world, the rate of reduction in emissions that would that would be necessary for us to to even stay with an outside chance of avoiding dangerous climate change of this two degrees C rise that we are all internationally committed to, the rate of reductions from energy consumption would be in the order of about ten percent per annum. Now that's a very approximate guide, but it's not the one, two, or three percent that most energy scenarios, emission scenarios consider. It is an order of magnitude. 11, 12, or possibly even more percent now, every single year. Now, that is well beyond anything we've been counting. It's beyond virtually anything so far that we've analysed. What we know is that in the short term, because we need to start now, in the short term, we cannot do that by transition to low-carbon energy supply, because we cannot get the supply in place quickly enough. And then, short to medium term, the only real major change that we can make is in consuming less. Now that would be fine, we could become more efficient in what we consume at probably two, 3% per annum um, reduction. But bear in mind, if our economy was say growing at 2% per annum, and we were trying to get a 3% per annum reduction in our emissions, that's a 5% improvement in the efficiency of what we're doing. Now we're saying we need at least a 10% absolute reduction. And there is no analysis out there that suggests that that is in any way compatible with economic growth. If you go back to the Stern report, the Stern report was quite clear in this, that there was no evidence that more than a 1% per annum reduction in emissions had ever been associated with anything other than economic recession or upheaval, I think was the exact quote. So we have no historical precedence for anything of greater than 1% per annum reduction in emissions. We're saying we need near a 10% per annum, and this is something we would need to be doing today. And therefore, we can draw a very clear conclusion from this, uh, that in the short to medium term, the Annex One, the wealthy parts of the world, can meet its meet their obligations for two degrees centigrade, is to cut back very significantly on consumption, and that would therefore mean, in the short to medium term, a reduction in our economic activity. I.e., we could not have economic growth. Now, we might have to hold a steady state economy, but my overall sense is that the maths probably point to us having to consume less this year for the next is maybe a decade or so. Has that ever happened before? I mean, as I understand it, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was nine percent cut, and that was just for one year. Well, what would what would a what would 10% a year look like? My understanding with the uh, with the collapse of the Eastern Bloc countries was that it, the drop was about five percent per year for up to about 10 years. So what we saw there was a relatively prolonged, completely unplanned. And, and as it turned out, very chaotic and uneven um, reduction in emissions, um, which would be about a half to a quarter of what we would need. So their economy collapsed. Their emissions dropped by about 5% per annum for about 10 years. We would be needing at least 10% per annum, if not considerably higher, 
in the wealthier parts of the West in particular, 10% per annum for longer than that 10-year period. So the Soviet Union, although that was a pretty terrible time for many people there, that is still not um, at the rate of reductions that we would need to be seeing here. And of course, our, the view would be that we should plan um, that contraction. So it need not necessarily have the devastating impact that it very clearly had um, and very inequitable impact that it had in Russia in particular. Um, so we're not saying that it would have to look like that. What we are saying is that that's the only precedent that's out there. And even that one is far, far smaller than the rate of reduction that we would need. Given that the current administration, or probably indeed any administration that would be elected in this country, would never be able to run on a platform of shrinking the economy by 10% every year, um, what are the implications? How does the need to do that and democracy sit alongside each other? Right. Well, firstly, I don't, I don't say we have to reduce the rate of growth in the, or sorry, the rate of the, the, the our level of consumption by 10% per annum in terms of our material goods. So I'm not saying our economy, if you like, has to reduce to 10% per annum. The reduction, the emissions have to come down at 10% per annum, but, the, but we should be able to get some efficiency improvements as well. So the economy would not have to come down as fast as the rate of emissions coming down. So I think it's, it's very important to make that, that distinction. And of course, the, the, the more low-hanging fruit that we can find, and I think there is a lot more out there than we have, been, been, than we have looked for or, or discovered previously from some of our provisional work, I think you can have some very significant improvements in our efficiency of how we do what we do. Not all technical, some technical, some behavioural. Um, but So I don't think it's quite as dire as necessarily you're, you're painting there from an economic perspective. Nevertheless, we are talking here at, at, at best a steady-state economy. And I, my, uh, the analysis that I and colleagues in the Tyndall have, have undertaken would suggest it, it probably has to be a reduction in our consumption, a, a, an economic contraction. Um, how would we sell that? Well, we've sold it at the moment. Uh, it is very clear that in the UK, many parts of Europe, that what we're seeing is, is at best stagnation, if not an economic reduction in our level of consumption. So we have actually got that at the moment. Um, we're not all finding this utterly dire. I do not think it is evenly spread. I think it has been un unfairly spread, and I think equity should be one of the considerations here. We have to bear in mind that even if we had an economic contraction, that wouldn't necessarily mean that for many people they would not they would have to consume less. I, I, I take a very clear view on this, that, that, we would have, that, that the distributional effects would likely mean that many people in the UK, for instance, would not see a reduction in their levels of consumption or their levels of well-being. But others of us in the UK, like myself, would certainly have to see a reduction in my level of consumption um, and possibly not, my well, not, not necessarily a reduction in my well-being, but certainly my level of consumption. So I think distributional impacts might mean it could be much more attractive to policymakers than, than, is, than at first sight it would seem, particularly given that we have a lot of issues now with things like employment, um, where that is disproportionately affecting people who are the, the, the middle, lower income band in the country. And I think a lot of those people could actually benefit from a transition to a much more efficient and lower carbon economy. So I think the distribution implications would have to be thought through and that any government that was more sophisticated in its analysis of climate change, tied with recognising the economic situation that we have got ourselves into anyway with our current model, if you put those two together, there are real opportunities now for a significant transition in, in how we do what we do. And within that, it would say that the economic growth model 
it's probably it's probably had its day. What do you see as being the role? I mean, certainly in terms of the transition approach is very much about what a bottom-up community-led response to that looks like. What's your sense of the role that communities can play in uh, in making that happen? Um, I take a view here that I think communities, but let's call them bottom-up and top-down. I'm not a great fan of those expressions, but they, they, they do capture it. The community approach, the bottom-up approach, is absolutely pivotal. To, to resolving some of the, the, the challenges and issues that we that we find ourselves facing now. So um, I think communities are really important here. Then they're, they're important for a number of ways. Even you, you might make an argument that the actions of any individual, of any household, of any of any local community, in and of themselves are relatively insignificant. In fact, we always hear this. Everyone says that whether it's the UK or whatever it happens to be, that the emissions are, are insignificant. The point about it is, it's not the emissions to an individual that is important, but that sets an example. It gives other people the opportunity to see if you can do something differently. Now, so if, if, if communities, and even if it's only one or two communities, are starting to do things significantly differently, that means we have an example of what we can do. That, if those examples are successful, they can spread. Once they spread, policymakers can start to see those. And that means we can also get a top-down agenda that can coincide with a bottom-up agenda. We can actually point to two policymakers saying, look, he's worked here, it's worked there. So why not implement policies that would facilitate those sorts of changes? So I actually see if we are going to get ourselves out of the hole we've got ourselves into, there's a real there's real scope for some partnership between bottom-up individual through to community initiatives um, and, and top-down trying to facilitate those initiatives as they emerge. It's part of the that we need if we are going to see real substantive change. And we've got to see that in somewhere like the UK. That helps within the EU. If the EU can start those directions, this can help in a much more wider global perspective. So I think we all have a responsibility to try and bring those changes about in our immediate, in our own lives, in our immediate environments. And that actually, that is significant, that what we do as individuals is absolutely pivotal to bringing about substantive change. And what do you see as being the role of scientists in all this? Should Should they only focus on definitely proven... Uh, science or move more towards how James Hansen is taking more of an activist kind of stance? How do you see that balance between science and uh, and activism? This is quite a difficult question, actually. I have to think about this. Um, my view here, I think, would be that as scientists, we have to behave as scientists. Now, we are human beings, um, and so science will never be this perfect, neutral, objective um, uh, profession that, that the techniques might try to describe it as. Nevertheless, I think it is really important in our science to maintain a very strong um, neutral objective line as much as we ever can. Um, now, science is not about black and white. There's a huge amount of uncertainty in a lot of science. There's a lot of probabilities, and clearly climate change has a lot of this wrapped up in it. But I think it is absolutely pivotal that as scientists, we behave as scientists. Now, as individuals, as citizens, we may be a scientist, but we are also citizens. As a citizen, I, have, I see nothing wrong. I have chosen not to do this, but I see nothing wrong with as a citizen standing up and saying, I think mine and my and other people's science raises concerns for me as a citizen, so I will act on the, on that analysis. So there is a clear distinction. So an individual is a duality here. The individual can, can recite their work neutrally. And then they can use that work to inform how they act as a citizen. So if Hansen or others want to change themselves, whatever it wants to be, or you know, behave runways, that is their choice as a citizen. I don't necessarily disagree with What I would disagree with, if it's anyone starts to misuse and manipulate their science to support other sets of views, that is 
just make the point quickly that I think Hansen is probably much more in terms of his size. I think he's probably been more robust than that. Many of the people we would traditionally think of as conventional scientists given the nice messages that government wants to hear. Because people like Hansen's analysis looks to be more extreme, people then assume that he is pushing the boundaries of the science. I think most of the scientists that are pushing the boundaries are the ones that are deliberately, and I know many of these people, are deliberately holding to a line that is politically palatable because that is what the politicians, what their paymasters, what society wants to hear. So actually, I think Hansen and some of those scientists who are prepared to stand up and make quite strong statements from their science are the ones that are being more neutral and objective than the majority of scientists, many, well, many of the scientists, say, who work on climate change, who are towing, in my view, a political line um, and it looks like it's neutral because it doesn't sound extreme. It fits within the orthodoxy. But that is not the way that we should be doing science. We should be, we, whether it fits in the orthodoxy or not, we should be objective, robust, um, direct, and honest about our science. You spend a lot of your time surrounded by all the papers and research and stuff that are coming out and the models that get worse and worse. Uh, how do you personally cope with that? And what do you do in your own life uh, that's motivated by, by what you encounter in your professional life? I have to say it, it gets increasingly difficult um, and it has affected my, my personal life quite considerably over the last few years and getting worse. I find it very hard to, to engage with the science um, and particularly then look that to what we as individuals, what society, what policymakers are doing or, or, or you know, evidently not doing. I find it quite, it has, it, has meant, it has been really challenging for me with some work colleagues, less so in the group, my immediate group that I'm involved with here in Manchester, but certainly wider colleagues that work with climate change who seem to me have no regard for what their research tells them. Their, their research seems to be little more than something that pays them, pays them all these things. I find that quite difficult. That I think is incumbent on us as scientists and citizens who work in an area that say this looks really very bad. Should we spend accordingly? So I think we should be changing what we're doing in our own lives. And I actually think I have more. Would, people will take more note of these of the um, analysis that we do, science to live, as if we thought it was correct. And I don't, don't do not think many scientists who work on climate change actually do that. But I also I found it with friends, family, colleagues, uh, friends and family. Who really don't seem to me to have any particular interest in in these wider sets of concerns, um, and I'm the point I suppose think I think now that when we are profligately emitting emissions, what we are knowingly doing now is we are damaging the life, the lives, and the prospects of some of the poorest people in our communities, in both the UK but more significantly globally. And then, how do we carry on doing that? We have to put a few pence into a collection middle of town to help people living in poorer parts of the world but we don't seem to be prepared to make substantive changes to how we're living our and yet science is pretty clear on this that the people the vulnerable people in the poorer parts of the world will suffer dire repercussions of what we are doing now already done and I, I find that almost reprehensible that science is prepared to completely ignore a very clear message of science and as I say, there's uncertainties in there, but it's sufficiently certain to know that we know that the people on the coastal strips of Bangladesh will suffer very significantly from our behaviour. Um, and many other pe poor people in the world will as well. And we, are, we really do not collectively as a society, and even often as individuals, really can't afford very challenging, difficult 
and increasingly difficult on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't pursue a lot of the things that I would previously pursued. I, I've quite a few of my friendships that I've had from my activities. I used to be a keen, keen well, I still am a keen rock climber. But I, I travel away for weekends or weekends away by plane. I, I, it, it's changed part of my life quite considerably. I have close friends when I used to work in the oil industry who really think climate change is a serious issue, but not prepared to make any changes to their lifestyles. And it has raised some serious challenges for me personally. Yeah. And I don't think it's easy. I think it's, I do not think that the future, for those of us that are in the very fortunate wealthy positions of living in the West, I do not think for people like me that it is all about win-win, easy opportunities. I think people like me have to make substantive changes to my lifestyle. And I don't think we should pretend otherwise. I don't like all these smiling environmentalists who think this is all going to be easy. It is not going to be easy. Much of it will be quite difficult. And we need to find a new way of doing and living our lives. And then maybe we can find some 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 a a fulfilled quality life. Sorry, you you cut out just on the last bit there. Could you say that last couple of sentences again? I do not think that there are significant win-win opportunities out there for people like me, people who have done done well, very well out of our Western system, that we live very carbon profligate lifestyles. I think it is not going to be easy. We should not pretend that it's going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. Um until we actually get a new way of living our lives, of, of finding value in our lives, I think that transition from where we are today, high carb, high energy use lifestyles, to ultimately, I hope to be, I hope will be much more fulfilling, lower carbon. That transition is not going to be easy. Um, and I don't think we should pretend otherwise. And do you see any, any possibility that, that that might come from and be led by government? Uh, no, I don't think it will be led by government. I don't think it will be led by anyone. I think it will be an emerging outcome of a society that cares, which government is part and citizens and individuals are part as well. So I, I, I've never particularly liked the idea of, of great people, of, of, of wonderful leadership. But I, I much more believe in an, in an emergent system, the properties and the values um, that are embedded within a system. Now, we might see that, that might be manifested sometimes in a leader, but it actually is an outcome of that society moving in a particular direction. So that's why, I, to me, I'm not looking for some great person to come uh, on their white charger and take us forward. I'm looking for all of us to engage. And out of that will emerge a new way of thinking of the world. Um, and I think we, given the economic changes, crisis, however we want to call that, that we are seeing at the moment, this is a real opportunity for change, an opportunity we need to grasp. We need to think differently, think positively, but recognize in my view that it will not be easy. Um, but, but think positively, we, we can institute those changes ourselves. And it is both bottom up and top down. It is a leadership we need, leadership from all of us. Do you think from a, from a climate change perspective, actually a deepening and a worsening? Uh, and a, and... The moment I just see us blaming everyone else. Um, Inequity is going up, not down. Um, and recessions are not good, good times for, you know, we, we're all in this together. We clearly are not all in it together. And many of us have not made any changes to the restaurants we go to, the hotels that we go to, the holidays that we take. And yet other times, other, the other side is we are completely stripping back some of the really structures. Um, and we're not putting the money into green infrastructure. We're quantitatively easing by putting money, you know, half a uh, third of a trillion into the banks, not into um, a new grid network or new renewable technologies or retrofitting um, houses. So... We have the prospects in the recession, but we're we're letting we're letting those opportunities go on a day-to-day -day basis. We're 
with knowing those opportunities. But it, it could it could be a much more positive driver than it has turned out to be. Uh, Bill McKibben in America argues that we need to get back to 350 parts per million. Is that possible? Well, it isn't a very long term, um, but within the sort of timeframes that we're talking about, at the moment, unless the geoengineering routes work, um, and I think we have to be very cautious about those, where we actually start to suck the CO2 out of the air. I mean, we can't even turn the lights off when we leave a room at the moment, let alone find suck the CO2 out there. I find this quite bizarre. But anyway, I, that's not to say we shouldn't spend some money now on researching those things. I think it's highly unlikely we'll get back to 350 um, uh, within we're within quite a lot of generations. Um, that's not to say we shouldn't have it as a goal. Um, but I think that what we should be looking to do is to stabilise the concentration as quickly as possible at levels they are today. I mean, they'll be higher tomorrow and higher the day after that. What we need to do immediately is to stop that rate of growth and then um, get the CO2 out the atmosphere as quickly as we can. Now, I don't know whether we've ever sucked the stuff out. At the moment, it's a long way away. It's um, it's, it's a Dr. Strange love future. That's not to say it may not have some purchase in the future, but at the moment, uh, at the moment we're, we're digging out shale gas and tar sands and lots of coal. We're going to be digging under the Arctic. We don't need to concern ourselves too much with the geoengineering route, getting the fossil fuels out of the ground today. So you talked about the need to cut the emissions by 10% a year and how difficult that's going to be and how it's not going to be an easy thing and it'll uh, it'll affect every aspect of, of what people do, particularly the people who are used to having it better. Um, can you can you describe a bit what you think it'll look like when we get there? What's your vision of what of what things would be like if we actually uh, do this successfully? If we're able to muster the will and the collective spirit, and we actually manage to pull it off? Can you describe what what it might be like when we get there? What were, well, this is quite hard to know. How what will the what will the future look like? Um, if we're parking other sustainability concerns, because I think it's quite hard for us as, as scientists and engineers and people working in this area not to, not to impose our other ways of seeing the world. I have particular things I would like to see the world improving as well. So I try not to em, em, embody those in my views of the future that are low carbon. But when we think about it, it wasn't that many years ago we lived relatively low carbon lifestyles. I'm 50 years old now. I had a very good life in the 1970s. I had a pretty good life in the 1980s. Um, I don't, see, don't think my quality of life has significantly improved since the 1970s and 80s, and yet my emissions and the emissions per capita uh, have really gone up very, very significantly. So we have lived good quality, lo relatively low carbon lives from where we are today, not very, very long ago. Now, a lot of that was because we consumed less, but we still live fairly high consumption lifestyles. And I think if we allied the, the technical expertise that we have now that could really improve the, the technologies that we actually use deliver lifestyles that were very good and that we live not very, you know, we're not talking about going a long way back to times when people were very impoverished. We had good medical treatment and we had, you know, good schools, good transport networks. So I think we can ally both our current technical skills and ability with a recognition that we consumed consistently less than we consumed today, but really not noticeably different, had not, not, not noticeably different lifestyles go back to the 50s and the 30s, they would be very different. I don't think that's true for the 70s and 80s. You start to ally those together. And I'm not saying, I don't think necessarily the future looks radically different from where we are today. The transition to that, where well, I think would be quite challenging, 
And I think there will be some significant equity or distributional impacts in driving forward in that. I think it has to move from an individually based society to is that turns to some some more collective dimensions. And I personally say that's much more attractive to me, but I recognize some people, they don't like that. But I think it is hard to imagine ourselves now getting out of the hole we're in without a greater degree of collective effort. I think otherwise we end up with this commons, everyone not doing their bit because they don't think other people have responsibility sorts of problems. Um, but I, I'm not going, I don't think we should be looking to go to points when we don't travel, where we live fairly austere, really quite dire lives. I think we'd have to have a, a greater degree of, of equity and more even distribution because I think resources will be quite scarce, energy resources. And in a scarce world, I think you have to, your equity concerns must chop some of the other concerns about freedom to manage the concerns. So it's, it's a future about sufficiency um, more than it is about greed and wants, I think. But whether it's different from where we are today, um, I don't think it necessarily has to be. I think there are lots of opportunities to behave differently, to live slightly different lives and our habits and alloy that with, with significant changes and the types of, not the types, but the efficiency of the technologies we use that are already available could move us in, this, in the right direction. And um, do you think the, the, the tradable energy quotas approach that David Fleming came up with would be a useful tool for that? Um, myself and my colleague Richard Stark at the time did quite a lot of work on that. In fact, we knew David quite well. Yes, I think that, would, it, I think that is certainly one very serious route to consider. And if, indeed, David Miliband was quite keen at the time. Defra eventually said that I think they dismissed it as a plan or as a as a as an economic instrument beyond its beyond its time. So it was you know it was for the future. Well, maybe the future is here now. Perhaps we should be considering it, considering it, using it. I think it adds a, an, a very good equity dimension that brings the the changes down to all of those of us emit much more than others. So I think there's a fair aspect to it that I believe will drive innovation and the early adopters more than say things like taxes and so forth. So I think there's some significant merit in it as a, an, an approach. Setting it up will not be easy, but we, are, we have to remember people say we, it's like rationing. Well, we're all rationed. We're all rationed by what's called our salary, our income. So we're not a world that isn't rationed. We, have, we are all the time um, juggling our rations of, of resources because of what we can and cannot afford. And this is just one more of them. So I'm not sure it's quite as difficult as some people suggest to imagine to start to have to wrap our carbon, particularly if it only relates to our household energy consumption, electricity, gas, and so forth, and our vehicle consumption. I think as you start to extend it beyond that, it becomes more problematic. But um, I think applied to households and transport, it could be, could be quite a useful tool for getting us to engage.